What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. Matthew 12, 1 through 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with with a withered hand. And And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors at Park Church. Uh, I spend a lot of my time, if I'm not familiar with you, uh, doing a lot of the preaching and teaching in the Highlands. So if you don't know, if you're new to Park Church downtown, this is one of two congregations that make up all of Park Church. And so we get to partner together as we grow as disciples, partner together in the ways we think about mission in the city and the way we lead together. Uh, But we love what God's doing in two different congregations in the city to see two congregations worshiping Jesus, loving and serving the community around them, growing together uh, is a gift. And so it's fun to be down here today to see a lot of familiar faces, some I haven't seen in a while, especially uh, I was out on a sabbatical this past summer, which was an incredible gift from the church. Uh, that was a sweet gift for our family. Uh, my wife and I, we had a, a new baby uh, a couple weeks, uh, now six weeks ago, which is wild. Um, so we, uh, just a lot of kind of change in our family recently. But also it means I'm kind of in this kind of, you know, new baby kind of fog of exhaustion. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And so if there's anything incoherent, uh, we'll blame the baby. We'll blame the baby. And uh, no, um, I'm excited to be down here with you all worshiping uh, is a sweet gift. Today we're in Matthew chapter 12, and, uh, and it's a passage that um, I think is a significantly misunderstood passage, which is a real uh, bummer because I think it's a passage that brings us uh, kind of face-to-face with a gift that God has designed us for, that he's given to us as his people. And so am I popping a little bit? All right, I'm going to put this little thing on. We thought that might happen. So we have this Britney Spears little uh, microphone thing here. Give me one second. Britney Spears reference, anybody? All right, a couple of people. We'll try that out. Now do you get the Britney, Britney Spears reference, anybody? You're like, isn't that that person that was like captivated by her father for a long time? And it's like, well, 
Back in the day, she was something else. Um, <laughs> something else. All right, we are going to pray. We need to pray. And, uh, and we'll get into this passage together. Uh, Jesus, we are so grateful uh, that you're with us. We sang about that. You are here with us. Uh, you promised us that you will be with us to the end of the age. And so we, we claim that. We pray that you would open our hearts, not just our minds to remembering something you said, but our hearts to the reality of your presence among us. That you're here like a priest that would walk among uh, a lampstand and to care for and tend to your people, like a shepherd that would lead us beside still waters that would make us lay down in green pastures. You're here uh, as a savior who wants to redeem us and set us free and, and give us freedom. You're here as a healer to mend the brokenhearted. And you're here as a restorer, or a reviver to give life and refreshment to our souls. And so I pray you do all of those things this morning. They meet individuals exactly where they are to give them exactly what they need. And so we're so grateful for your word, which is alive. And I pray your spirit would light it up uh, into our hearts this morning that we'd see your good way, uh, like we learned about last week, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. The way you've designed for us leads to freedom and rest for our souls. And so would you help us today uh, to experience that, that we'd feel even in the depth of our soul this morning like a deep breath, and not just for us, but for those around us, not just for those here, that we'd be a community that would feel like a refreshing place for people that are navigating through a weary world. And so would you give us rest in your presence this morning, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Uh, Sabbath is the commandment that we have forgotten to remember. The Sabbath is a commandment that we've forgotten to remember. It's the fourth commandment of the ten, and uh, Entry into the Sabbath commandment in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 is remember the Sabbath. Like it's going to be hard to remember this. You're going to be tempted to forget this. And yet as a society, it is, I think, of the ten, the one that we've forgotten to remember. I know that's true in my own life. I, I come from a, a family. Both of my parents were farm kids and kind of hard work is just sort of in the blood of my family history. If you're to trace my family history, work hard is like value number one. We work hard as a family. And so both of my parents were hardworking people. It was sort of the main thing that they would instill in us. And there's so much about that that I'm really grateful for. But the concept of rest as a family was something that we weren't as good at. Uh, we would do fun things, but even our vacations were filled with different work projects. You know, it'd be like, hey, we're going to do this thing where we work on this house or do this deal. Weekends were full of different projects of different kinds, and there was always something to do. And so evenings for us, work on a car, work on a neighbor's car. Weekends were fix something in our house or go help fix the neighbor's house. And, and it was just like what we did. We were always busy doing things. If you layer onto that sort of like family background, I'm an Enneagram 3, so if you're familiar with the Enneagram, you now know my deepest motivations and insecurities. Um, I care way too much about what you think about me, and uh, are you okay with me right now? Is everybody okay? Okay. Uh, you know, you know. Uh, but one of the things that that brings is a sense of kind of achievement. You want to be making progress. So if you layer this kind of work ethic of my family on top of my own personality and the dysfunctions of my personality, you get a recipe for a kind of drivenness and a workaholism that's not just for me connected to uh, the work I do in life, but it's connected to my house. There's always something to fix. There's always something to do. There's always something to be improved. There's always something that I feel responsible for that could be better. 
And to sit back and rest while something could be better is like grates against the fabric of my being. And so for years and years and years, this was sort of my MO, which is kind of a, a busyness with activities aimed at improving something or building something or fixing something. And that kind of whole kind of range of emotions in my own system really led to a, a significant degree of burnout. So the idea that I was designed for rhythms of rest and even commanded to take rhythms of rest somehow just missed, missed my life. I, I didn't know anything about the commandment to rest. Actually, I was familiar with it. I learned about it as a junior high kid. I became a Christian in junior high. I learned about the Ten Commandments. I learned about it as I walked through my own story and uh, growing. I studied languages in undergrad and in grad school, so I learned, memorized the Ten Commandments in Hebrew. And, you know, you can like, I can like talk about this commandment, but to receive it, to actually like live in light of it was something that I never really understood. And so I, it led to a significant kind of degree of emotional and mental burnout maybe about five years ago as I slowly learned that I'm a limited human and had to face my own humanity, not as like, uh, oh man, it's like so hard to be human, but humanity as a, as a gift and learning about limitations. And so I, I began to kind of learn about Sabbath and learn about rhythms of rest and, and found out in my own heart, part of that was even just for me to slow down and face inner stuff, face fears and insecurities, anxieties, and things about my identity that I didn't want to face. For me, a busyness of activity, to kind of layer activity upon activity, achievement upon achievement, responsibility upon responsibility was a way to avoid some of the emotional unhealth that I was afraid to face in my own heart. And so when I finally kind of came face to face with that, with that and that kind of dysfunction manifested itself in a real kind of degree of emotional burnout, I came face to face with this gift of Sabbath. And the more I studied it, the more I realized I'm not alone in this. It's a mega issue in our culture. Uh, people will say, if you talk about the amount of people that actually take a full day off, it's only 14% of Americans take a day off. And of that 14%, so imagine 100 people stand up and then you say, all right, if you take a day off, stay standing. If you don't take a day off, I want you to sit down. Only 14 people and kind of modern American culture are going to stay standing. Of that 14, and we say, hey, of the 14 standing, I want you to only stay standing if, and only if, when I say take a day off, you legit don't work. You don't do a house project. You don't pull weeds. You don't scrape the siding off your house. You, you just legit rest. Do you know how many people will be standing up? 2.6. 2.6. So two people would be up. One person would be like, yeah, kind of, you know. Uh, <laughs> Depends what you mean. 2.6 people. So on average, that's how many people in America at rest. But the problem is not just a problem out kind of in broad culture. It's a problem in the church. I want to read this quote from A.J. Swoboda, who wrote a book called Subversive Sabbath. He says this, Sabbath has largely been forgotten by the church, which has uncritically mimicked the rhythms of the industrial and success-obsessed West. The result, our road-weary, exhausted churches have largely failed to integrate Sabbath into their lives as a vital element of Christian discipleship. It's not as though we don't love God. We love God deeply. We just don't know how to sit with God anymore. We don't know how to sit with him anymore. This is what he says a little bit later. He says, the result of our Sabbath amnesia, and I love that phrase, Sabbath amnesia. The result of our Sabbath amnesia is that we have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, 
and spiritually malnourished people in history. Does anybody resonate with that? I, I certainly do. And Sabbath has, has become for me a gift that's like working out some of those kind of toxic kind of uh, patterns and practices that our world has largely absorbed. And the passage we're looking at today brings us into the heart of the Sabbath. Uh, in the context of the passage, Jesus is actually going to be correcting an abuse of the Sabbath that was prominent in first century Judaism. And the abuse of the Sabbath and the, the distortion of the Sabbath in the first century, in the Jewish culture, is different than the sort of abuses and distortions that we experience today. But what I want us to see in the passage is Jesus is in no way abolishing the fourth commandment. That's not what he's doing in this passage. He's not abolishing the fourth commandment. He's restoring the heart of the fourth commandment. And so for Jesus, I'm going to give you just in a sentence what he's doing. For Jesus, as he wants to restore the heart, he's teaching that Sabbath is a gift from God designed to bring humanity relief and restoration in God's presence. For Jesus, the Sabbath is a gift from God that's designed to bring humanity. That means you and me, but also people around us, people in our city and our culture. It's designed to bring humanity relief and restoration in God's presence. I want you to see it in the passage. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to keep it open to Matthew 12. We'll mostly be in Matthew 12. I'll show you a couple of the Sabbath commandments uh, from the Pentateuch or from the first few books of the Bible. But I want you to see it in the passage. What we're going to do today is just kind of do a Bible study. We're going to walk through this passage and make sense of what, what's happening. Uh, why is this here? What's Jesus saying? Why does Matthew include it right here in this passage? And then we're going to talk about what that means for us uh, as a people. And so in Matthew chapter 12, we're coming right off the heels of the Great Invitation. So for the past two weeks, y'all have been looking at this kind of broader context where essentially Jesus comes into uh, this community and he is in earlier chapter 11, starting in verse 20, he's actually denouncing or he's kind of speaking against a, a culture in these cities, a few particular cities that has turned away from the reign of God, turned away from the love of God. And so we see this in our own city, that we've absorbed values and practices and loves and passions that have turned us, instead of finding joy and rest and life in God's presence, we've turned from God, away from him, and we've found other ways to try to pursue a flourishing life, the, the beautiful, good life. We're carving out and forging our own path. And so this is a rebellion. The Bible word is sin. We've turned from God. And Jesus has entered into human society and he was teaching people about his love. He was showing people his power to restore and to heal and to forgive. And yet, after all of these cities had seen all of his power to heal, all of his power to restore, all of his power to forgive, they continued to run away from him. They saw him, they heard him, they heard him teach about a different way, they heard him teach about God's love and God's kingdom, and they kept running away from him. And so Jesus denounces those cities saying, you are running headlong towards this destruction instead of turning again to me. And th that Bible word is repentance. Instead of repenting, you're continuing to plunge on this path towards destruction. And into that environment, instead of just kind of being angry and saying, well, get on with it, he's actually still offering this invitation. And that's the end of Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Are you running the path of your culture? Is it leading you to exhaustion and burnout and pain and destruction? Is it shriveling your soul? Is it beating you down? Are you feeling just weary, exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished, beat down? Are you feeling that? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke. Follow my way of life. Learn from me. Be my disciple. Apprentice under me. Because I'm gentle. I'm lowly and hard. I'm, I'm approachable. I'm humble. I'm leading a different way than culture is. They're trying to go up and more and more. And I'm showing you a different way. And you're going to find a, a rest for your soul. The rest your soul was made for. It's like watering a, a kind of dried up, shriveling plant. I'm going to water that thing. And it's going to give your soul a, re, a refreshment. Because my yoke is easy. The burden I give to people is really light. It's like the, the way you're made to live. And then Matthew in chapter 12 says, for example. And that's what this passage is. It's sort of a case in point for this way of Jesus. He's saying the way that the world thinks about life is burdensome and beats you down. The way I think about life is restorative and brings reviving and arrests your souls. For example, let's talk about the way your culture, to the first audience, thinks about Sabbath, thinks about rest. And then I'm going to teach you the way I think about rest. And that's what he's doing in this passage. Matthew's put these two stories here about the disciples getting grain on the day of Sabbath, and also Jesus healing a man with a withered hand on Sabbath as a way to show people the true design in the heart of the Sabbath. And so I want you to see it in the passage. Look with me, chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His, his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. I want you to imagine the scenario. It's a Saturday for the Jewish people. Sabbath begins Friday evening at sunset. Sabbath ends Saturday evening at sunset. So it's on Sabbath, and they're walking through a field. They are weary, right? So in Jesus' kind of group of disciples, there wasn't like the person that's in charge of the Instacart order. It's not like, you know, like, hey, did you remember to like order our food? And it's like, no, I forgot. They actually went days at times with no food. They were roaming, they were nomadic people, preaching, kind of depending on others. There were times where they were incredibly hungry. And so on this particular Sabbath day, they're walking through these grain fields and they're hungry. And if you're familiar with just agriculture, like if you think about a, a wheat plant, it comes up and there's a head of grain and you could pop that head of grain off and there's kind of grains in there you can eat. It doesn't taste good, but it's calories. You know what I'm saying? Like it's like, it's like a granola bar. It's like, this isn't good, but it's like, it's what I have. It's like, just kind of, they just eat it. They just grab it, eat it. You know, they could use some sugar or some salt, but no good. And so they, they'd take this and they'd eat it. And as the Pharisees and the religious leaders saw it, look at what it says. Verse 2. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now for us, we're like, why would that be unlawful? Why would that be against Sabbath law? They're just walking through a field, grabbing some heads of grain, taking the grains and eating them just as some like calories just to kind of keep them going. Why would this be unlawful? Well, this is actually a really significant kind of violation of rabbinic Sabbath teachings. So I want to talk to you about where that comes from. What's God's original design for the Sabbath? Why did we get to a point where grabbing some heads of grain became a breach of some Sabbath law? So if you go all the way back, just studying the Bible and say, what is this Sabbath thing all about? It begins in Genesis 2. God has created the world and everything in it, the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. He's populated the heavens with these luminaries like the sun and the moon and stars. He's populated the earth with plants and animals and humanity. He's populated the skies with birds. He's populated the waters with fish. And it's this kind of flourishing existence where everything and everyone is obeying the words of the king and the king reigns. And it's like this beautiful 
paradise kingdom where people are in the presence of their maker, following his wisdom for life, doing exactly what they were designed to do, living into their assigned function, and it's flourishing. And God does that for six days, and then in Genesis 2, on the seventh day, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. He rested. And the idea for rested in Genesis 2, the word there is this kind of like took up his home to enjoy what he had made. He like comes into the creation, the fullness of all that he's done to kind of live in it with humanity. And it's this beautiful, beautiful image of this rest. And the word for rest in that passage is the root of this word Sabbath. It means simply to stop. He worked for six days and he stopped. Stopped his working and enjoyed creation. Enjoyed this refreshed, flourishing existence with his people. And that's the design. It's sewn into the fabric of creation. And it's something from the beginning that God designed, not just for humanity, but for the animal kingdom and for even agriculture itself, just healthy rhythms of rest. Fast forward in the story, people did what people do, which is we said no to the reign of God and through the temptation of an evil one, an evil being turned away through these deceptive lies to try to forge life on their own. And that rebellion against the reign of God led to a separation from the God of life, the God of love, the God of light. So there's darkness, death, and pain in the world now. And so as humans are forging their way, trying to make life work in this world, God kind of intervenes into human history to redeem a people, to say, I'm not letting go of my plan for humanity. I'm going to redeem, I'm going to restore, I'm going to revive, I'm going to accomplish exactly what I set out to accomplish. And so he calls a man named Abraham. And Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And we fast forward in the story, and the 12 tribes of Israel are in slavery in Egypt. And in this experience of slavery, they are living under the weight of inescapable burdens. And I want you to I'm using that phrase on purpose. Inescapable burdens. They're laboring in a world that will never give them life. Instead of it leading to a flourishing, they're living in a way that's crushing them. They're building bricks and they're making storehouses and they're building a civilization, civilization, right? Does that feel right? You know when a word just all of a sudden feels wrong? (laughs) Civilization. They're building a civilization that's not the kingdom of God. It's actually lifting up the name of oppressive powers that are crushing people. And they're a part of this system that's leading to a destruction and a rebellion and perpetuating this plight to destruction. And and as I think about this life of inescapable burden, I can't help but think about just the way I learned to live. The way I learned to live and you did is identity, not through religious achievements, maybe for some of us, but it's identity through achievement, through accomplishment, through accumulation, more, 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 better, 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 always improving this kind of American like myth of progress, which is like the whole goal of life is make progress, upgrade your lifestyle, right? Like you think about that as you've grown as a human being and maybe your income is raised little by little. It's like now we can kind of upgrade our lifestyle little by little. And it's always more. It's never enough. And you just keep going, going like as if, if I had a certain amount of experiences, if I could do more activities in the mountains, if I could be involved in more social groups, if I could have a bigger house, if I could have a different location, if I could have kind of more of this or more of that, if my, fa- if my family would just be at the next stage of life, if we can just get to the, like always a little bit more, a little bit more. And we think we have this pipe dream of some paradise future that's finally like life as it was made to be. And in the pursuit of that life as it was made to be, we're finding ourselves more and more road-weary, 
more and more beat down, more and more exhausted, feeling maybe a weight of inescapable burden. I felt that. That's how I felt about five years ago. It felt like just the weight of responsibility between my family and the work I do and the things that are always broken and always need help just felt like, when can I be free of burden? There's like no pocket to like feel like free of burden. I don't know if you've ever felt that. Just like life is always, there's always more to do. So there's this path, and so the people of Israel are feeling this inescapable burden. They're laboring in a kingdom that's crushing them, in a system that's crushing them. And God intervenes and rescues them through the blood of the Lamb and through the waters of the sea. He calls them out with his power and his redeeming love. He calls them out of Egypt, and he rescues his people from Egypt. We talked about the Exodus a few years ago in a series. We talked about God rescued his people from Egypt. People are coming. He's like, the people, Israel is out of Egypt, but Egypt is not out of the people. Like there are still values and things that they picked up along the way that they're really having a hard time. And so God in the wilderness speaks to the people 10 words of instruction. Call them the 10 commandments. And it's 10 instructions for what life in God's kingdom is supposed to look like. And number four addresses this inescapable burden. And I want you to hear it in Genesis or in Exodus chapter 20. Here's what he says. This is the Lord giving these Ten Commandments to Moses. Exodus 20, verse 8. Commandment number four, for my people, when you think of what it means to be the people of God in this world, remember the Sabbath day, the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. When you come back to this command at the end of their 40 years in the wilderness, it's in Deuteronomy 5. Moses is giving this final sermon that is the book of Deuteronomy. If you think sometimes we preach long, Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy is longer. It's just longer. So, you know, count your blessings. Um, (laughs) That's right, Miguel. There we go. Uh, And so in Deuteronomy chapter 5, he's repeating the Ten Commandments. And in Deuteronomy 5, he, he says, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Like you felt that crushing weight. In my kingdom, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Crushing weight is not the way of my kingdom. Inescapable burden is not the way of my kingdom. I have something different for you. So in Exodus, after he kind of gives the command, the fourth command, a lot of the next several chapters in the Exodus story is unpacking what we could call case law. Like here's this command, right? Like a constitutional kind of thing that's for the people. And then we're going to unpack it like as case law in a bunch of different instances. So in Exodus chapter 23, there's another kind of explanation of the Sabbath. I want you to hear this. 23 verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. And I love that. Because Sabbath isn't just about rest for you. It's also about justice. It's also about compassion. It's also about creating an environment where it's not just like, hey, don't get on. I'm resting today. Don't be a burden to me. It's actually about compassion and making sure you're also thinking about creating a community where everybody gets to experience rest and like restoration. 
That if somebody comes into the people of God, it should be a place, something about this place, people love me and pay attention to me and care for me. Something about my heart just feels lighter. Something about life just feels like I can take a breath here. I can, I can breathe. I, I can take a deep breath. Something about this community because they care about restoration, not just for themselves, but for all of those around them. And then you get to this passage. And you're like, man, this sounds really good. And I want, I want to read where it goes. It's not funny. I don't know why I'm laughing. It's just surprising. And so this is where he goes, Exodus chapter 31, still unpacking this case law. And this, uh, this is chapter 31. We're going to look at verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, this is the very end. This is right after the Lord's going to write down the Ten Commandments on a tablet of stone and give it to the people. This is like the culmination. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I set you apart. I'm making you this beginning of this new creation, like a restoration of humanity. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. You're like, wait, what? Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed." That all of a sudden sounds like way less exciting. You know, you're like, hey, gift of rest. And like, this is really great. And you're like, and make sure you don't work because if you do, we're going to kill you. <laughs> you're going to die and cut you off from our people. What's going on there? Well, this is a, a huge kind of explanation of even the heart back to the Garden of Eden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil like looks good and eating a piece of fruit doesn't feel like a big deal. But if the Lord said not to, then all of a sudden it's a big deal. Because are we going to trust God's design for us? Are we going to trust God's image and direction and instructions for life? Or are we going to do it our own way? And Sabbath became a sort of like important point for the people of God. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust me to provide for you? Are you going to live life as dependent human beings instead of a kind of this autonomous kind of pursuit of life your own way? Are you going to trust me? And Sabbath became an opportunity to trust him. So it's a gift of rest, but also it's an opportunity to trust are we going to trust the Lord? Are we going to trust his design for who we are? But on top of all that, even in Exodus 31, it's also a sign that my people are set apart. They're living life differently than everybody else in the world. And that became a hallmark for the people of Israel. This is what makes us different. Of the, all the commands for the people of Israel, so many of them found their way into other societies. The two that were most distinct for the people of Israel, among all the peoples of the kind of Near East and the ancient world, the two that made the most distinct are circumcising their male children and the Sabbath. Of all the commands that are visible to the watching world, it's the Sabbath, right? Circumcision is admittedly less visible than whether or not you work on Sabbath. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, 
Makes sense if you think about it. Um, so the way that they're going to kind of set themselves apart to the watching world is through the keeping of the Sabbath. And that became really significant. But if you break the Sabbath, if you do work on the Sabbath, you're going to be put to death. Now it becomes really important to figure out what work is and what isn't work. Like, is it work to make a meal? Sometimes it feels like work, sometimes it doesn't. For somebody it might, for somebody else it might not. Is it work to kind of rearrange some stuff in our house? Uh, Is it work to kind of like carry some stuff to a friend? Is it work to go on a journey? Like, what is work? Because we don't want to mess this up because we don't want to die uh, for accidentally breaking the fourth commandment. So the rabbis kind of began to work on this. What's work? What's not work? And they started clarifying in different situations. Well, here's work in this situation. Here's work in this situation. And they kind of began to start multiplying all these kind of like particular rules to clarify for people what would constitute as work and what wouldn't. And they had ways that they got there. Uh, But by the time you get to the kind of time of Jesus in the first century AD, there was oral teachings and rabbinic teachings that were just really, really significant and intense. In fact, in 200 AD, there's a thing called the Mishnah, which is sort of a kind of codifying or a writing down of all these rabbinic teachings. And there are just so many instructions, very detailed instructions on what kind of constituted work on the Sabbath. I'm going to read one from you. So these are rabbinic teachings that would have been floating around in the day of Jesus. This one is about what you can carry and can't carry on Sabbath. Follow me. This is Put on your mental cap right now. See if you can track this. If an alleyway is enclosed on three sides with courtyards opening into it from three sides and the fourth side opens into a public domain, it is prohibited by rabbinic law to carry objects in it on Shabbat. However, carrying in an alleyway under those circumstances is permitted if a crossbeam is placed horizontally over the entrance to the alleyway. You got it? Memorize that. Don't mess it up or you'll die. I mean, this is, but like, this is hard stuff, right? I'm going to keep going because it keeps going. The Mishnah teaches that if the crossbeam spans the entrance to an alleyway at a height above 20 cubits, one must diminish the height of the crossbeam so that it's less than 20 cubits. Okay. Are you good? You still tracking? No, no. Nobody's tracking. Like, but these are the things. Multiply this times dozens and dozens. Now, where they're getting this from is they're taking the kind of instructions for building the tabernacle and they're kind of applying it to different situations. And in some Jewish communities today, they continue to do this. And not everybody who continues to kind of apply these in different cultures is thinking about it in this like really toxic way. The the heart of it is we're not going to do work. But the laws became so significant in the kind of The importance of those laws for the people of God as a national marker, what set them apart, was so important to the people that breaking these laws became the major violation that the rabbis and the Pharisees were paying attention to in the first century. So much so, 200 years before the coming of Christ, not quite 200 years, but the second century BC, uh, uh, the people of Israel were under attack by somebody named Antiochus Epiphanes. So you can read about this in 1 Maccabees. Antiochus Epiphanes is attacking the people of Israel. And, and one day he's preparing to attack on Sabbath, on Shabbat. And the people of Israel have a decision to make. Will they mount up arms to defend themselves on Shabbat? Is that work? And they decided that they would not violate Sabbath to defend themselves. And thousands of men and women and children were killed. Because they said, we would rather die innocent and fight for our lives in profaning the Sabbath. 
We'd rather die innocent before God. Now, they later decided that that was a bad idea. Like, rabbis were later like, oh, we probably should have defended ourselves. And they found kind of scriptures to say, hey, trying to protect and sustain life is okay to do on Sabbath. But I just want you to get in the mindset of how significant this was for the people of Israel. So you're hungry on Sabbath. One of the laws is don't glean, don't harvest food. And they had decided in the rabbinic teaching that pulling heads of grain, when you sever that head off of that stock, you have now harvested, you've now gleaned. And in that harvesting, you have profaned the Sabbath. And now this Jesus, who everybody's thinking this might be the Messiah, is sitting here with his people and they're popping the heads of grain off these shafts of wheat and they're eating it. And they're saying, what are you doing? You're breaking the Sabbath. Was he? Was he breaking the Sabbath? No, he was not. He was breaking some of the rabbinic teaching on it, but he wasn't breaking the heart of it, which is what he does in this passage. And I think this is so brilliant. Jesus doesn't get insecure. Jesus isn't like, no, uh, well, if you just read this passage and this, he's not like insecurely trying to defend himself. What he's going to say in this passage is so profound and so radical that he knows it will be provocative. It's going to elicit the anger of these leaders. He's going to be so forceful and powerful in what he does. But the image he gives is, Beautiful. I want you to see this in the passage. This is Matthew 12, 3 through 8. Here's what he says. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? He's going to give two examples. What he's doing here is a really common kind of method of teaching and kind of first century Judaism, which is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Hey, if this is okay, how much more this? And that's what he's doing. He's argue, if this is okay for David, how much more what we're doing here? If this is okay for the priests, how much more are what we're doing here? So he tells a story about David, and you can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 21. If you start back in chapter 19, this scene reads like a Jason Bourne movie. I mean, it's super fascinating. David is on the run from his own government. He's the anointed king. He's not yet the king. Saul's the king. Saul wants to kill David because he's a threat to Saul's kingdom. And so David's running around. Saul's son, Jonathan, the prince, his friends with David, has given him some like insider info to know how to avoid his dad. And so Saul's chasing David. David's looking for hiding. He's looking for shelter. He's looking for protection from his family. He's looking for places to rest. And he's constantly like evading his his own government. And there's this time where him and his people, like his group of kind of soldiers that are with him, this ragtag crew, is hungry. And they don't know where they're going to get food. And so they're like, where are we going to get food? And David remembers, well, I could go to the tabernacle. I could draw near to the presence of God. And the tabernacle is in a place called Nod. And he goes to the priest of the tabernacle. The priest's name is Ahimelech. And he says to the priest, do you have any food? Me and my men are hungry. We're weary. And Ahimelech says, David, the only food I have is this showbread. It's this bread that was designed to be brought into the Holy of Holies before God and it would stay hot. And when it cools down, we take out the hot bread and we put in new bread that's hot and the priests get to eat this showbread. But people like you, David, it's not lawful for you to eat the showbread. And David's like, but we're hungry. Like we need food. We have nowhere else to go. And Ahimelech's like, well... Have you more or less been keeping yourselves pure? And David's like, yeah, more or less, we've been keeping ourselves pure. And he's like, all right, then fine. You know, that's basically what happens in, in 1 Samuel 21. He's like, all right, fine. And he gives him the showbread, right? 
And the people of Israel later reflected on that and decided that David wasn't guiltless. David's their guy. David's their king par excellence. I mean, he's the prototypical king. He's like, he's the one that they're modeling all of their hopes after. And what Jesus says is if David could walk into the temple and eat the showbread, then we could pluck some heads off grain, which isn't merely an argument to say, well, if, if some people can do it, then other people can do it. What he's saying is if David, that king, can do it, then how much more can I? He's saying, I am greater than David. My kingdom is better than David's. Who I am and my people and my followers here is more significant than David. The kingdom we are bringing is the kingdom that David's kingdom was just a shadow of. So we can grab the grain off the heads of wheat and eat it. And then he tells the story of these priests, and they knew for the priests that there were Priests could do work on the Sabbath, which I resonate with as a pastor. Like if Sabbath for you is a Sunday, it's like for me, Sabbath is, or Sunday is like more of a worky day because we're here and doing stuff and setting up and preaching. And so for my family, Sabbath is on a, on a different day. But they're saying on Sabbath for the priests, it's busy. They're offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. What they're doing, the priests are facilitating an environment where people could worship God. And for the priests, that was work. And they're saying the priests were able to violate Sabbath rituals and laws to do work because it was a facilitating of worship. And what Jesus is saying is me and my people here, we are facilitating worship. We are inviting humanity to draw near to the presence of God. Because Jesus is saying, I am the presence of God. I am where the fullness of God resides. And so Jesus explains this. He said, if you would have known what this means, and he quotes Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, the, the goal of the Sabbath rule was not rule upon rule upon rule. It was compassion. It was love. It was not just love for you, but love for others. And he's confronting the priest saying, you have made this into a legalistic framework that's crushing people. You missed the heart of the whole thing. You lost the heart of the whole thing. And in this mic drop moment, he says, for the Son of Man, which is his favorite title for himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. What he's saying is, I am what the Sabbath is all about. I designed the Sabbath. I gave the gift of the Sabbath. And Sabbath exists to serve my purposes. Sabbath exists to point people to me. Sabbath isn't supposed to be a, a kind of collection of rules about what you can and can't do. Sabbath doesn't exist to merely just be a day off where you can kind of chill for a while. Sabbath exists in God's design to point people to the presence of God. And that's what it's all about for Jesus. And he get, kind of in the next section, he walks into the synagogue on Sabbath and Matthew tells another story and the priests are like, all right, he just said some crazy stuff. But let's catch him again. Will he heal on the Sabbath? So there's a man with a withered hand and the priests or the Pharisees say, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Their answer was no. It's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus tells this story. Now he's just arguing from common sense. He says, which of you, if you had a sheep and it fell into a ditch on Sabbath day, would just leave it there? Wouldn't you go pick it up? He's saying like, if you had a sheep on the Sabbath day and it fell into a ditch, would you be like, oh, bummer, my sheep fell into a ditch. I hope you're there tomorrow, you know, and you stay alive. No, they'd get it out. And actually the Pharisees taught that that was permissible. They taught it was permissible to get your sheep out of a ditch. And he's saying, this is a human being created in God's image. To bring restoration for, for a human being is so much more significant than to restore a sheep. 
He's saying Sabbath is about restoration. And that's where he's bringing us to the point. Is he saying here that the Sabbath rules aren't important? No, he's not abolishing the Sabbath. He's bringing us to the heart. So what is the heart? Sabbath is about a relief from burdens. Sabbath is designed to give humanity relief. Not burden, not rule of what you can and can't do, not a system that crushes you, but a relief. Two, Sabbath is about restoration. It's a time where your soul gets to enjoy and be restored, but it's also a time of restoration for others. That on Sabbath, we're not just thinking about rest for ourselves, but how to create a culture and an environment where other people get to breathe and take a breath and feel relief from their burdens. So we're thinking about setting up our rhythms as a life and as a community in ways that just bring restoration to one another and to anybody that enters into this community that they feel this is a place where it just feels like weights are off. I can be who I am. I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to accumulate things. I don't have to show how good my life is and how together I am and how big my house is and how much kind of I've achieved in all my experiences. I don't have to prove anything here. I can actually be relieved of that burden that is around me all day in our society to be a certain kind of person, to be more than I am. In this community, I can be exactly who I am. It's a relief. It's restoration. It's restoration for me and for you and for one another and all who enter our community. And then most significantly in this passage, it's for Jesus, that relief and that restoration happens and comes in the presence of God. You'll notice in the passage when he says, something greater than the temple is here. If in the David kind of talk, he's saying, I'm, my kingdom is better than David's. I'm a better king than David. With the priest, he's saying, I'm actually mediating the presence of God to people. My life is the place where people draw near to God. And what he's saying is if people come near me on Sabbath, they're going to eat. If people come near me weary and beat down, they're going to get restored. If people come near me wounded and withering, they're going to find restoration because that's who I am. I'm a God who restores the broken. And Sabbath has always been about that. It points you to God's power to create in Genesis. It points you to God's presence and his love right now in this moment where you don't have to prove or earn God's provision. You can trust in him. But it also points us to the hope that one day God is going to come again and restore everything that's been broken. All the longing, all the pain, all the need to prove and establish your worth and all the guilt and shame that just weighs on you and all the pressure to be more than you are. Jesus is relieving us of that now, and we still feel it. We are, we are wrestling in this moment of we feel the relief, but we still feel the burden. Sabbath is this weekly reminder that that's not the way it will always be. Every time my family experiences Sabbath, every Friday night to Saturday evening, it is never perfect. It's always something that's not exactly the way you'd want it to be. There's always something that's a little stressful or a little hard, but it's even in the imperfections that reminds us that we are longing for a time when Christ will come again and make all things new. That we'll be fully in God's presence, we'll experience his love and freedom and be relieved of all of the weight of life. And so the question we have to ask as we think about this is what does that mean for us? Does it mean that you have to obey the Sabbath? Does it? Well, it depends on what you mean by have to. Like, do you have to to prove to God that you're like really good religious person that follows all the rules so that he'll love you? No, he actually came to relieve you of that. To relieve you of the burden to be more than you are to get God to love you. God loves you now. In fact, even in this passage, the cross is looming over this whole passage. As Jesus does and teaches these things and heals people, the, the Pharisees look at him and instead of like, oh, Jesus, thank you so much for teaching us. That makes way more sense now. Uh, that's not what they do. They pull together and they kind of pull together a council and they're like, how are we going to kill this guy? Because his way of life is 
going to crush the system that we've been building that lifts up, lifts us up. That they have built a system that made them feel better than other people. And Jesus is undermining that whole system to go to the broken and the weary and say, I can give you rest right now. I can give you love right now. I can heal you right now. I can refresh your soul right now. And they saw that as a massive threat to everything they had given their life to build. Everything they had been pursuing. And so they wanted to kill him. And they did. They did. That Jesus' commitment to give life to others cost him his own life. That Jesus' passion to bring restoration to the world meant that he was going to have to face the death that the world deserved. That Jesus' desire to redeem us from slavery to sin and these ideas that crush us meant that he would actually have to shed his blood to bring forgiveness and freedom and grace and to open up for us a way to experience God's love quite apart from anything we could or couldn't achieve or do. And that's what he's done. He's actually opened us up to this opportunity to draw near to God's presence right now. Like today, you can take a deep breath today knowing that the God of the universe loves you. He's with you. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to make your life better. You don't have to go up the rung at work to experience God's love. You don't have to accumulate more. You don't have to upgrade your lifestyle to get God's acceptance. You don't have to make everything perfect. You can actually make mistakes. You can be imperfect. You can be human and experience God's love now. And so do you need to keep the Sabbath for God to love you? No. But why wouldn't you receive the gift of Sabbath? Why wouldn't you? It's still God's instructions for flourishing life, as it always was. And in our society, we've created all these ways to avoid it. We busy ourselves with all of these different things instead of experiencing this gift, this gift. And so I want to read to you this quote from Dan Allender from his book, Sabbath. We'll close with this. I want you to hear what he says. He says, The Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intended it, is the best day of our lives. Without question or thought, it is the best day of the week. It's the day that we anticipate on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. It's the day we remember on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday. Sabbath is the holy time where we feast and play and dance and have sex and sing and pray, laugh, tell stories, read, paint, walk, and watch creation in its fullness. Few people are willing to enter the Sabbath and sanctify it to make it holy because a full day of delight and joy is more than most people can bear in a lifetime, let alone a week. For my family, the only day that I would legit, this is back kind of prior to learning about Sabbath and growing it, the only day I would legit stop was Christmas Day. We do Christmas Eve services as a church and kind of busy doing multiple services, go home, get home late at night, finish packing the gifts, you know, go out with the headlamp on and build a trampoline for the kids. You know what I'm saying? Anybody done something like that? You're like, you're just like getting everything ready, put the bicycle pedals on and, you know, and then it's like you wake up and finally it's just delight. It's fun. It's play. It's a gift. Nobody's texting you like, hey, we need this thing. Everybody's resting at the same time. So nobody needs you. Nobody's saying, I need you. I need you. I need you. We're all resting. For my family, for the past three years, every Saturday has become a little Christmas. A little Christmas, just a day of delight. Friday night, we welcome Sabbath with a little ritual, and we hang out together, we watch a movie, we eat pizza, we sing, we play, we wake up the next day and get donuts or make a Dutch pancake or something. We read, we take a nap, we do something fun, we think about what's restorative, and we do that for 24 hours, and I look forward to it every day. And afterwards, I'm just thinking about yesterday was a, what a day yesterday was. It was a gift. It was a real relief. And that has helped me breathe in life. 
And so for you, I want to ask, like, why would you not receive the gift? Some of you have been practicing this a lot longer than I have, and there's things to learn. There's not this way you have to do it. You don't have to do it on a certain day. You don't have to do it a certain way. But you want to start thinking about what would it look like? And so that's my question for you. What would it look like to take a step towards practicing the Sabbath? It's different for families than it would be for young couples without kids. It's different for couples than it would be for those who are not yet married. It's different for all of us in different seasons. But the things that I want to think about is for us, what does it look like to create a 24-hour period of time to slow down, experience a relief from burden and, and restoration in God's presence? And so the words my family thinks about is stop, rest, worship, and delight. We're going to stop our working. We're going to rest and what's restful for you. What's restful for you? You're going to stop for 24 hours. What's restful? What's worshipful? How do you turn your heart towards God? Eugene Peterson called a day off a bastard Sabbath, which is essentially kind of a Sabbath connected, disconnected from its source, right? So he talks about like a day off is like, hey, if it's just a day off where we just kind of like do all these things and it's different, we're not at work, but we're just taking a day off. It's like, that's not the fullness of what, what God designed. It's disconnected from the design. The design is, Rest and restoration in God's presence to slow down and turn your heart to him. Doesn't, need you, doesn't mean you need to sit around and meditate all day. Doesn't mean you need like eight hours of silence. But you want to be thinking, what's actually restorative? What actually waters my soul, right? Does watching SpongeBob all morning with your kids restore your soul? No, <laughs> definitely doesn't. That's not happening in our house. Does letting your kids watch SpongeBob so you can get an extra hour of sleep restore your soul? Yeah, maybe. You know, uh, maybe that does a little bit. I don't know, just like figure it out. Sort through what's restful, what's restorative. Brainstorm, practice. It's a practice we grow in. At the beginning, it's hard because it means rearranging your week. It means planning and preparing. Just like the Israelites had to gather twice the manna on the sixth day so they could rest on the seventh day, sometimes we got to do a lot more work. For my family, Friday is mowing the lawn, cleaning the house, getting groceries, getting stuff ready. So that Friday night, we're done. No more mowing the lawns, no more pulling weeds, no scraping the fascia of the house and getting the, none of that. No house projects, none of it. And it's a gift. But don't miss the heart. The heart is to find relief and restoration in God's presence. In God's presence. For you, whether it's on a Sunday or a Saturday or a different day of the week because of your work schedule, what would it look like to take a step? And we're going to keep providing resources to grow in this as a community. But when we do it together, it's holy, it's beautiful, and it offers the world a different way. It's light, burdens light, it's free, gives our souls rest, and we are made for it. So let's pray that God would help us to grow as a people that trust him and follow his way. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you now as a people. Pour out grace on this community. I imagine obstacles. Maybe it's husbands and wives have different images about what restoration would look like or different opinions about Sabbath. Or maybe it's the fact that there's just commitments that are so significant right now that make it hard for people to even imagine what that would look like. And so I pray you'd help us learn how to take steps, but to be gracious with ourselves and with one another as we learn. Would you restore us as a people? Would you set us apart? Would you allow this community to be like a community of light in a world that's just exhausted and beat down, that people would feel joy, love, humility, kindness, warmth, grace in this community, that they'd feel a relief of burden, that they'd feel this is a place where I can imagine my soul would be restored. Help us to embody the values of your kingdom as we live this life together. We thank you for loving us and pursuing this, Jesus. With all your grace and your love, we're grateful. Amen. 
Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.